0: This beautiful building is located and we now all get to call our home. Um, I'd like to pay uh, respect to Elders past, present and emerging and to welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander visitors that we have with us this evening. I think we may have a bit of a treat in store for you this evening. Uh, We have um, the character who's now snuck up the back of, which wasn't quite the rules, Graham, but anyway. (laughs) He's obviously a bit of a trickster, so uh, this evening we have Graham Simassian with us here to talk about his new book, The Rosy Result, Um, and by the end, his writing with The Rosy Project. Like its predecessors, The Rosy Result is hilarious and thought-provoking. It has a brilliant cast of characters. It's a little bit bittersweet this time, as it says, you know, it's really the final triumphant volume where we kind of say goodbye to two much-loved characters. Um, I'm also delighted to welcome Alex Sloan, who's with us, um, and will be in conversation with Graeme this evening. Many of us here in Canberra um, feel like we've grown up or I feel like I raised my children with you, Alex, listening to you on the radio. Alex has been a companion to many of us over many years while she's been part of the ABC radio uh, group. However, before we uh, hear from Graham and from Alex in conversation, we have another special treat. Uh, I would very much like to introduce to you uh, a friend of Graham's and a colleague, a fellow writer, Katie Taylor, who is in ch- uh, joining us this evening. Katie, when she writes, is known as K.J. Taylor. Um, and Katie was born in Canberra and started a- a writing her first stories and poems when she was only a wee seven-year-old. Uh, she was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome when she was 16, and and soon after at 18 signed her very first publishing contract with Scholastic. Since then, Katie has published 17 more titles with the genre of high fantasy. Several of them are international bestsellers and a couple have actually been uh, translated into foreign languages, which is indeed very impressive. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce you to KJ Taylor, who is going to read us a passage from one of her books, The Shadows Air.
1: Thank you, Katie. Hi, everybody. So, yeah, I'm Katie. This is actually the second time I've been on this stage, although the last time was a while ago. Uh, Anyway, so yes, as you heard, I'm a Canberra person and I'm an Asperger, which is one reason why Graham invited me. About us without us. Anyway, so unfortunately, I'm not going to be reading from a. hilarious romantic comedy, rather a dark fantasy novel. So, just a short extract, I got some of my fans to vote on which part they'd like me to read. (laughs) Problems with human sacrifice, you may want to leave the room. The Blood Moon Ceremony took place the following night in the Moon Temple out in the city. The temple had been built on the site of the old Sun Temple and Aranath's orders as a deliberate sneering gesture at Griffiths, the day god. He'd always thought the night god appreciated it. The witnesses had already gathered by the time Aranath made his entrance, alone as tradition demanded. He came in via the dark wood doors and walked slowly towards the altar, admiring his surroundings along the way. The temple had been designed to look like a forest. The pillars that held up the roof were covered in tiny brown tiles that spread onto the floor in stylized shapes of roots, and here and there lantern holders' branches jotted out from them. The lamps they held were silver and had blue glass, so the light they gave off was cool and muted. There were no benches or seats of any kind, and the gathered worshippers were standing. More than 200 of them had crammed themselves into the temple, and more were standing in the street outside. Many of them reached out to touch Aranath's robe as he passed. He paused to touch some of them in return, sometimes murmuring a few words. At the center of the temple, a hole had been left in the roof to let the moonlight in. It shone on the circular altar where Sathrin and the rest of the priesthood were gathered. As Aranath approached, Sathrin came to meet him. She wore her ceremonial silver gown and a deer mask covered her face. She silently offered a cup to him. Aranath took it and walked toward the altar while the priestesses formed into a circle around it. They were bare-chested, clad in nothing but simple fur loincloths, each one wearing the mask of a different tribe. Aranath lifted the cup to his mouth and drank the blood it contained before handing it back to Sathryn. She gave him the copper-bladed ceremonial knife in return and went to join her companions, leaving Aranath to approach the altar alone. He reached it and stood there, looking impassively at the victim already chained to it. Aled had been gagged and he stared back mutely. Aranath looked upwards to where the moon shone through the roof. It was a perfect silver orb, a wolf moon. "'I know you're watching me,' he thought. "'If I didn't kill him, if I let you die, "'what would you do then, master?' But he knew then, even now, he didn't have the courage to do something like that. Around him, the priestesses chanted, invoking the night god, and the worshippers joined in softly. Araneth knew what he was watching for, and he kept his eyes on the moon, waiting. Sure enough, after a few moments, he saw it, saw the shadow begin to cover the moon. The night god's eye was closing, blinding her to the world, and so cutting her off from the strength of her people. Araneth kept quite still, holding the knife and watching the phases of the moon pass in a single night. Full moon followed by the half moon, the dear moon followed by the crescent. After that would come the new moon. As the shadow drifted across it, the moment came. The moon turned red from edge to edge. Inside the temple, the priestesses moaned and cried out in horror. Aranath tore his gaze away from the bloodied moon and saw the altar and the victim. Aled struggled feebly against his chains. He was actually crying in his terror. Aranath felt the same cold calmness he'd become so used to over the years, mixed with a terrible excitement, an almost sexual, lustful feeling. Join me, he whispered, and brought the knife down with all of his strength. The copper blade, etched with sacred runes, sank into Elit's chest through his ribs and penetrated his heart. He jerked and screamed briefly and then went limp as he died. The instant that happened, Aranath saw the world around him fade away. Darkness came in its place. He looked around almost dreamily and found himself surrounded by a ring of strange, beast-headed women. Each one was an animal in spirit and human form. Each one represented one of the ancient tribes of his people. Aranath breathed deeply. Come to me, he said softly. Silence answered, and then she was There. Aranath turned to face her and saw her standing near him as if she had been there all along. She looked just as he remembered her, young but old, wearing nothing but a mantle of silver fur that left her breasts exposed. In one hand she held a silver sickle, in the other the full moon somehow balanced on her palm. Why have you summoned me, Aranath, Taranisai? Aranath stepped forward. I gave you your blood just as I did before, master. The night gods sighed. Oh, my sweet Aranath, how much you have suffered. "'You know the pact,' said Aranath, stone-faced. "'I gave you your blood. Now answer my question.' She ignored him. "'Aranath, you have not listened to me in such a long time. "'I am not pleased by this. "'I have a kingdom to look after,' said Aranath. "'That's enough to occupy me for now.' "'Yes.' She lifted her hand and put the full moon into the hole where her eye should have been. "'You have done so well, Aranath. "'My people prosper, and I am worshipped as I should be once again. "'You have done as I asked you, and I am grateful.' Aranath's expression did not change. Good, now you can tell me what I want to know. Ask and I shall answer. Then tell me this, said Aranath. Who am I? The night god smiled. You are Aranath Taranasi. You are the shadow that walks. You are the king you deserve to be. I didn't deserve to be a king, Aranath snapped. And that isn't what I mean, and you know it. I want to know who I was, master. Who was I before you changed me? Before I was your creature? She reached out to caress his face. Why do you wish to know this, Aroneth? Why can you not let the past rest? I don't know, master, but I want to know, Aronath's face creased in pain. Who did you sacrifice to make me? I know I know. I had a life before That I know I was someone, but I don't know who or why I died. I don't know why I forgot. It does not matter, said the night god, truly. Listen, Aroneth, our time is short, and I have new commands for you to carry out. Oh, do you, Aroneth snarled. What is it now, then? Who else do you want me to kill? You have reclaimed the North in my name, said so the Night God, quite calmly. Now I would have you deliver Griffith's ultimate punishment. It is you must invade the South, conquer its cities and its eyries. While they are still in disarray, there is confusion and poor leadership there. Now take advantage of it. The Griffith's power can be overthrown. If you act quickly, the whole of Simria may be ours for the taking. So Saithrin tells me, Aronath said sourly, then she is right. Destroy the south, Aranath. I command it. It is in your power. Aranath hesitated. I don't want to. Do it, she hissed. I command you. What if I refuse? She enveloped him, smothering him in her cold and numbing power. You know what I can do to you if you do not do as I tell you. He shuddered, trying not to show his fear. I know, master, I know, but the southerners aren't a threat anymore, and surely the coldness around him increased, spreading pain into his limbs. Surely nothing that I got raged. I have commanded, and you must obey. The day god will be an enemy to me until the ending of time itself, and he must be destroyed, or he will destroy me. Aaronath cringed under her onslaught. All right, all right, I'll do it, Master, I'll do it. She relaxed and took away the pain. Excellent. You'll do as I have told you? Yes, but only if you tell me who I was. Why are you so anxious to know? I don't know, but I am. Please just tell me very well she stood over him her skin shining like the full moon before you died you were a young griffiner who went by the name of aaron carrickson aaron I felt a shiver go down his spine why did i die you had a griffin partner who was killed in an attempt on your life, said the night god. You swore revenge upon the one who had betrayed you, but you did not have the strength or the will to take that revenge. Eventually, you attempted to become a griffiner again by abducting a griffin chick and were sentenced to death for your crime. You were killed as you tried to escape from prison. I fell, said Araneth. Yes, you were thrown from the top of a mountain as you fled from the city guard. The fall crushed every bone in your body. And I died. Of course you did. No human could have survived such injuries. Araneth, I chose you because you were a northerner who had seen and suffered the cruelties of Griffith's people, yet had the strength and the wit to resist. You alone had been fully trained as a Griffiner and had all the knowledge of their ways that you would need to defeat them. When you were in prison, begging me to save you, I heard that prayer. It was a true prayer. As as you lay dying, I sent Skandar to you. It was his magic that made you become the master of death. My chosen one. Aranath felt strangely blank. Aaron Cardigson? I was Aaron Cardigson. Yes, but that man is dead now. You are King Aranath Tarnasai. Cray Crayne, as the Griffins call you. Your creature? Yes. Now, do you pl- do as I have told you? I do, said Aranath. Excellent. She caressed his cheek. You have never failed me before, and I trust that you shall not do so now. She began to fade. Araneth, listen, I have one final command for you. Yes, master. This girl you have taken into the Eyrie. Yes. Protect her, the night god said sharply. Keep her close to you. Make her trust you. Make her worship me, love me. Do not let Griffiths have her. I won't. Master, why is she so important? She has a power she does not know, Said the night god. Araneth, make her mine. You must do this. I will, said Araneth, I promise. Good. If she does not become loyal to us, you must kill her. Why? The pain again. Do not question me. She will give her soul to me or she must die. You will not allow one to live in our land who does not serve us. This is all important, Aranath. Do not let her out of your sight. Do not let her fall under Griffith's spell. She will be mine or she will die. Yes, master, said Aranath. Yes, I understand. I swear. I'll Keep her by me. I already arranged for her to go through the womanhood ceremony in the temple under your eye. See that she does so with a pure heart, said the night god. There must be no doubt. And then she was gone.
0: Wow. Thank you, Katie. That was fantastic. I think, Graham, you've just given yourself something to live up to, which could have been a bit scary. Um, so, fantastic, Katie. I know where I'm going to get that book a bit later. Um, so, at this point, I'd very much like to welcome Alex and Graham to the front uh, to start our conversation with Graeme. So, thank you.
2: <clears throat> Put him there. Can you see him best there? <laughs> Congratulations, Katie Taylor. What an amazing bit of writing, and what an amazing read as well. <laughs> oh wow! Well, congratulations. Thanks so much, Graham. Alex. <laughs> Here we are at the National <laughs> Library. We
3: shouldn't be surprised. This was planned. <laughs>
2: <laughs> look, I first met Graham. Was it six years ago? Twenty thirteen? Is that when Rosie Project came out? That
3: would be right. Yeah.
2: Yep. In the, um, and I look. I could not. I think. Raymond and I bonded because I clearly and genuinely love The Rosie Project. I thought it it made me laugh, it made me think, and Don Tillman and Rosie became new treasured friends. But when I say I could not have loved a book more, it turns out that I could.
3: And it's the best of Adam Sharp. No. (laughs) I
2: love that too. I love that too. Although I still think you should put out the soundtrack that goes with that as well. But um, The Rosie Result has done just that, Um, not only because I get to meet Don and Rosie again, but you also get to meet their son, Hudson, and it's their relationship with their son that allows Graham to have a superb, well-researched conversation about autism. And I found myself putting this book down while I was reading it and thinking, oh, God, I'm so ignorant. I have made classic, classic mistakes, and I was downright embarrassed at my lack of knowledge, but then I realised I'm neurotypical.
3: <laughs> well, some people read the book and realise they're autistic, which is a, a, probably a more a, a more dramatic sort of finding from reading the book.
2: But it, look, this is a very, very fine work for a neurotypical Graham.
3: Well, well, thank you very much. That's very, that's very sweet of you.
2: <laughs> Just explain that term, because. I am now sticking to it.
3: OK, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a dictionary here. And in fact, if you want to be really technical, you would say autistic and elistic, meaning non-autistic. But neurotypical means standard, what we might have called normal back at, at one time. Typical, most people would say the neurotypical. If you're autistic, you're not neurotypical. If you've got some other variant, then you're not neurotypical. Um, and it, it's a word that's, that's out there to... You know, to avoid us saying things like normal and carrying, and carrying um, which carry values, as it were, uh, of being good or bad.
2: And so incredibly useful in terms of this discussion.
3: Mm.
2: Um, Graham, when we first met Don, you say you skirted around the idea that Don might be on the spectrum. Yeah,
3: well, it was a good reason for that. Um, I didn't draw on, um, any, on any research. Any formal research on I would say in the, in the day we would have said Asperger's increasingly um, we, we see Asperger's um, under the umbrella of autism although some people with Asperger's diagnosis choose to keep that you know, that word and so reasonable enough um, but back then um, I didn't do any research on it I simply based on Tillman on people that I had worked with. People say, what what research did you do on autism? And I say, 30 years in information technology. Um, (laughs) And and, and, several years in the radio club, and and doing a physics degree, and doing a PhD in a science faculty. So I met a lot of people who were like Don Tillman, but who did not have diagnoses of anything. Um, Partly because those diagnoses weren't around or as popular as they as they are today. My wife's a psychiatrist, and she would be one of the first to say that that was not on their list of possible diagnoses. So the friend who most contributed to um, to the definition of Don as a, as a character um, had been diagnosed in the past as being. Um, Bipolar, possible schizophrenia, um, OCD, certainly with depression, without anybody ever raising the words Asperger's or autism. So, and, and the other thing was a lot of the people that I worked with, and this is really important, were, um, had never needed to see, never felt the need to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. They were functioning just fine, thank you very much. They had relationships, they had jobs, and always remember that the psychiatrists, as they seek to define autism, are going largely from the people who presented them Themselves to them as being in distress, and in fact, if you read the DSM-5 criteria for autism, it's all about lack of function and problems. Um, and indeed, in the in the rosy effect, a psychiatrist says to Don, "You can't have Asperger's because you're, you've got a happy marriage, you're happy in your job, you're functioning in your personal life, you don't have health problems, and so forth. So, ergo, you don't have it." I think we're getting a more subtle understanding of it as a difference now, rather than as a disease. Mm. But.
2: Well, you, you said in the, the first round of interviews with the Rosie Project, the yep. first book, you had interviewers, and I hope I wasn't one of them, who talked about you know, Asperger's as a disease.
3: Oh, look, I, I, had, um, I was interviewed on in the ABC, and they said, so Don has Asperger's disease. <laughs> and, and to my shame, I didn't call him out. I was feeling nervous, I'm on the TV, I knew he was reading from a teleprompter and, and, and mm. so forth. Um, but you know, I skirted around the issue because I'd just say, he's just this guy, but as the book got closer to publication, I realised that people would say he's on the spectrum. I ran the book past a couple of autism organisations and sought their feedback, and they said, look, we think he's a, a pretty good role model, but you put anything out there into the autism community, expect there'll be some, some pushback. As it turned out, there wasn't, but it was very clear the autistic community claimed Don Tillman as one of their own. They, they said, yeah, and he's a good guy, he's sincere, he's decent, we love Don Tillman, and so it's good that we have someone out there that we love and that we can relate to and whose head we are in. But shortly after that, I was talking to, um, I was actually at an Asperger's, it was then called a conference, and Tony Atwood, the, the guru um, in that field, the well-known authority on Asperger's was there, I was talking to him. And I said, look, I'm not a clinician. I can't say Don Tillman has Asperger." He says, I'm a clinician and Don Tillman has Asperger's. <laughs> so Don, Don was formally diagnosed by Tony Atwood, just so you know. And at that point, I said, all right, we've got, we've got to say that. But even then, you could do the first couple of books, and even though the words were on the page, he does the Aspie Kids lecture, this um, Lydia, the um, social worker, calls him out and says, are you Asperger's or something like that, and the psychiatrist steps in and says, no, he's not. But we didn't really tackle it head on until the third book.
2: And, and Katie said something beautiful before. She said, no no about us without us, yep. which I think is, is fantastic. And I might get you to go there because I think this is a pivotal part of the book. Are you OK to yeah, read? Yeah, I'll,
3: I'll answer your question first, if you like, just, yep. to, just to say that um, I was interviewed by um, uh, Yen Perkis, uh, formerly known as Jeanette Perkis, very well-known autism activist, last night. And we, we, we sort of talked and said, you know what it is? I've got the audience you've got the knowledge, so let's get together and see if we can get that out together. Um, because it's all very well to say own voices and so forth, um, but not every publishing a book isn't going to get out and get, and get visible. I'm in the fortunate position that I've now got a very large audience with my books, because I would like to think I'm a reasonably good storyteller. Um, what I, what's important for me is that any content there is well informed by people in the community and gets out and, and sends the right, accurate impressions Rather than, you know, in the best of all worlds, I would be both a really good storyteller and autistic. Um, but, you know, I'm only offering one, so I've got to go and get the other.
2: <laughs> so, uh, are you up for the reading now? I'm
3: up for reading. Um, so, let's just, as a very, very minor background, um, Don and Rosie's son, Hudson, is 11 years old and it has been suggested at his school that he might be on the spectrum and perhaps an autism diagnosis would be appropriate and Don is horrified because Hudson is just like him. (laughs) And we all know, or Don certainly knows, that he is not autistic. All that Hudson needs is a little help from Dad. But they decide to go along to a seminar um, to learn a little bit about it. Remember, said Rosie, as we selected our seats, We're not here to debate the diagnosis and treatment of autism, but to get a sense of the community. Are they talking about kids like Hudson? Are those kids benefiting from whatever interventions are happening? Just so you know, this talk is going to go about eight minutes, OK? Just prepare yourselves. (laughs) You're suggesting I avoid contributing. What about asking questions? Let's just keep a low profile, said Rosie. There were two speakers. One was approximately 40, female, body mass index approximately 24, (laughs) conservatively dressed. I guess the other was 15 years younger with a BMI of 30 and short blonde hair dyed partially purple. She was wearing a black t-shirt with the slogan, Autistic Lives Matter. Julie introduced the older woman as Margot, the mother of a girl with autism. Margot began by expressing solidarity with the autism parents in the audience and sympathy for their challenges and sacrifices. She thanked Julie for using person-first language rather than calling her daughter a lot less of it than she started with. Margot's daughter, who is now 16, had failed to develop language skills at the expected age and was diagnosed before her third birthday. After researching treatment options, Margot and her partner engaged professionals to provide intensive therapy. This all seemed rational and uncontroversial, but someone had a question. That person was Rosie. You use the word intensive. How many hours a week? About 25. That was in addition to her schoolwork? Yes, once she started school. And for how long? She's still doing it, and she's continuing to improve. I'm going to talk about this, but she's at a mainstream school. She has friends. Yes, it is a lot of work for her and us, but if you want, how do you motivate a three-year-old to do all that therapy? The system we use, and I'm going to get to that, has built-in rewards. Black t-shirt leaned into the microphone. And punishments. (laughs) Remembering that withholding reward is punishment too. You're using ABA, right? Julie expanded the acronym, Applied Behaviour Analysis. For those who are new here, it's widely regarded as the gold standard for autism treatment. But we're getting black t-shirt interrupted. I can't let that go. Psychologists and parents love it. Of course they do, because that's who it's for, not the kids being trained like puppies. Now we're in Rosie's area of expertise. Her research project was comparing therapists' and patients' perceptions of success in treating bipolar disorder. What sort of work is being done to get feedback from the kids, she asked. And Margot, how does your daughter feel about her progress? She's getting the dog treat, so how can we tell, said black t-shirt. <laughs> She's been trained to spend her life seeking approval from others. Ask her how it's working out when someone uses her screwed-up reward system to abuse her. This was excellent. Rosie's questions had shifted the discussions from a single, possibly unrepresentative, case study to a discussion of contentious issues, with two opposing views being articulated. Unfortunately, Julie felt obliged to let Margot finish a prepared speech, which reiterated that her daughter had made impressive progress in acquiring speech and transitioning into a more socially acceptable person. Black T-shirt was introduced as Liz, and she immediately identified herself as both lesbian and autistic. I'm not a person with lesbian sorry, I'm not a person with autism any more than I'm a person with lesbianism. I'm lesbian, I'm autistic. When I get a cold, I have a cold. I'm a person with a cold, and I want to get rid of it. Medical help appreciated. But being autistic and lesbian, that's who I am, and I'm not interested in anyone trying to cure me of who I am. If they force me into conversion therapy, because that's what ABA is, for being lesbian or for being autistic, they're abusing me. If they do it to a child, they're abusing that child. Let's continue with a list of things not to say when speaking to autistic people. Examples you seem pretty normal to me, or what's your special talent, or we're all on the spectrum. And explain the idea of social disability with a brilliant example. Imagine everyone used wheelchairs except you, and society was designed to accommodate them. You'd knock your head on door frames, have to ask for a chair at restaurants. I thought of Hudson and the ski boots. Julie called for questions. The first came from a male of approximately 40. I know you said not to say it, but you seem pretty normal to me. <laughs> he laughed. Liz did not. I mean, you're obviously at the high-functioning end of the spectrum. What is it, how does what you say relate to... Liz didn't let him finish. See, she said, this happens. I ask you not to say something. I tell you it's hurtful and insulting, but you treat it as a joke and say it anyway. So let me say something hurtful and insulting to you. Bug off, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Julie attempted to interject, but Liz raised her hand in a stop sign and spoke over her. You didn't shut him down when he was offensive, so don't shut me down. But yeah, some people might want to know if what I said applied to all autistic people, and it does. Yes, there's a spectrum, but it's multidimensional, and people's place on it changes over time, sometimes because of treatment. Liz used the air quotes convention. Some days I'm doing well in some areas and not in others, and the next day it's different. But I'm always autistic. It's my identity, my permanent way of being, and those of us who can speak out have to do it for those who can't. Perhaps we have a question for Margot, said Julie. (laughs) Rosie had already breached our agreement by asking six questions, (laughs) so I considered it reasonable to ask one of my own. I began to raise my hand and caught Julie's attention, but Rosie pulled it back. Julie smiled, but Liz pointed to me. "'Most of you won't have seen what just happened,' she said. A man in the audience put his hand up and Julie nudged Margot. "'I can tell you what that nudge meant. "'Watch that guy. "'He may ask something weird. "'Cause he's maybe, oh shit, autistic. "'Am I right, Julie?' Julie attempted a response, but it was difficult to make sense of it. And Liz continued, "'Then the lady beside him asked a question before "'tried to shut him down, didn't you?' "'I was expecting Rosie to respond aggressively.' Instead, she said quietly, you're absolutely right. I apologise. OK, said Liz, I'm guessing, I'm guessing you're neurotypical. I know Julie is, I know Margot is, and we autistics aren't always great with the nonverbal stuff. What we just saw was the neurotypicals using their secret language, like, hey, do you want to take that D-O-G for a W-A-L-K?
2: <laughs>
3: they used it to send a warning about one of us, to shut us down, to oppress us. She looked directly at me. Anyway, you had a question? Correct, but what you said was so spectacular, that I may have forgotten it, but I sensed it in a positive way. I remember the question. The question was for Margot, as Julie requested. You can ask Liz a question if you prefer, said Julie. Excellent, can I have one each? <laughs> That's fine. Margot, you said your child attends a mainstream school and has friends. Is she socially accepted? Thank you, said Margot, and I've no wish to shut you down. It's a good question and a tough one to answer. Her friends are mainly people like her, people she's met through therapy. It's not ideal, and sometimes we feel they're holding her back, but it's a stepping stone. You didn't answer the second part, said Liz, about acceptance. I hadn't finished. I'm not here with any agenda except to share my experiences in the hope it will help others. So I'll tell you honestly that she's struggling. She's far, far better than she was, but she's not there yet, and she's having a tough time at an age when she should be having fun. And my husband and I wonder every day if what we're doing there is the right thing. She turned to Liz. We know what we're doing is traumatic for her. We know it could damage her. We know she might even end up committing suicide. We'd have to live with the fact that our decision might have been responsible. But she was three. We were her parents, and we decided it would be worse if she could never speak or look after herself. Maybe we th- you think that would be okay. Maybe it would be if the world was different. But I don't. And you can't empathise. But it's with your smart words that my daughter would never have had in your perfect world, and say so you speak for her. With was loud applause from the audience. I expected my second question would have been forgotten. We reached the scheduled end time and facilitators generally think that finishing with applause is more important than completing the agenda. But I was unused to having an autistic person monitoring proceedings. (laughs) Liz pointed me out again. You had a question for me. I wouldn't like it to get lost in the chorus of sympathy for people burdened with children like us. I'd like to ask everyone who clapped when Margot said that I couldn't speak for another autistic person, who does speak for her? Someone with no experience of what it's like to be different? You're saying there's a clear division between autistic and neurotypical, I said. The second term was new to me, but I expected I would find it useful in the future. The instruments for identifying autism seem to be inexact. You stated that it's a multidimensional spectrum, so it seems simplistic to reduce it to a binary. You're a scientist. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Well, I'm the first to say that we need more science. Good science that doesn't begin with a model of autism as a disease or a disorder or a deficit but I'm not a scientist, I'm an activist. And for me, for the fight, I mean you're either autistic or neurotypical. And it's not dictated by what you score on some scale embedded by neurotypicals, any more than you use an instrument to decide if you are gay or indigenous or identity. Diagnosis is for diseases.
2: Fantastic.
3: <laughs> I need to remind you that it's a comedy. <laughs> And it, it, and it is, but, but you can tackle important issues, I think, in comedy. Mm. Um, as, as my uh, comedy teacher, Tim Ferguson, says, make him laugh, make him cry, make him think, and he sits there in his wheelchair only able to move one arm, talking about multiple sclerosis. And You say, yep, you can do that.
2: There's a hell of a lot in there, in that scene, isn't there?
3: Well, let me talk as a technician, OK? <laughs> you don't want to lecture people on autism. Um, you know, it, you, you know, people have to know what the, the, the state of play is, what, people, what the issues are, and they're not all there by any means, but you've got to give them a, a taste of, what, of what's yeah. going on. And you, can't, and you don't want Don saying, I read a book and this is what it said. You've got to dramatise it. So this is the most compressed, dramatic way that I could find of bringing those issues out. But let me tell you, if you go to an, um, an autism conference, you won't hear such direct anger at each other, but you will hear those two points of view being put um, very clearly, and probably even more strongly.
2: Mm. So, in this book, which is really about parenting as well... Well, well, it is.
3: I mean, Just because you know, Hudson is different, the, the question that, that parents always have, I think, with kids, mm. how much to mould, yeah. how much to let them be themselves. When I was growing up, you were, I was to be moulded into a man, and, and it was very gender specific. You, became a man or a woman, and if you're a woman, you needed to be able to knit and sew and do various things. You're a man, you needed to be able to fix a car and swim and, and do those manly things, not necessarily cook a meal. Um, and But and today we perhaps say, well, let them just be themselves. Um, what do you do? How do you intervene?
2: And, and this there's a, there's a pivotal scene right at the start of the book. <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about this, Graham, which means that Don decides to become the major carer for Hudson, so you're, you cover a lot of ground in this book well, because you cover, you cover race, you cover gender and sexism in the workplace, you cover anti-vaxxing, you <laughs> cover domestic violence, yeah. Um, but yeah, tell, just give us um, a little why Don decides
3: to take on the Hudson project. Okay, well he decides basically to have enormous problems and he managed to solve them with one cut, one sweep of the Gordian sword to cut the knot. So his basic decision is he's going to give up work because some bad stuff is going down at work. He's been accused of racism, to cut a long story short. Um, Don quits his job and decides to become Hudson's primary carer and to make up for the lack of money coming in because he's the prime breadwinner. He'll open a bar and run that in the evenings. (laughs) Piece of cake. (laughs) piece of cake. Um, but the point is that Don is going to teach Hudson what he, wish he w- wished he'd known when he was at school, because of Don, back when he was growing up. Um, because we think of autism as a childhood thing. We want to see Don as a child. I didn't want to write a story set in the 1980s because we had a completely different view of autism. Interesting historically, but not particularly interesting in terms of commenting on today's structure. So Hudson becomes Don's avatar. If I'd known what I know now, when I was at school, I could have got through it. I'd have been a huge success. It would have been fine. So I can teach Hudson, because kids love being told stuff. Uh, I, can teach how to live, I can teach Hudson how to make it. I'll, I'll see him through this thing. So we do get a look at Don's childhood, as Don reflects on it. Um, but we also see a style of parenting, which has got its strength. I love the scene with the mother with the canned goods, which <laughs> <laughs> I pointed
2: out to my daughter as we were going past. It used to be very famous for canned goods. It's canned beetroot and canned peaches and canned <laughs> I,
3: I, I remember dating a girl once um, from that, sort of, that region of many, many, many years ago. And we, we uh, went around to meet her parents and her mum was making the salad. For those of you listening at home, I was doing can opener.
2: <laughs> I didn't expect to cry in this book, and I did. Good. You're meant to. Make th- him laugh,
3: make him cry, make him think.
2: Well, but you've done all of those things, the relationship between Don and his father, and going back to his childhood, it's...
3: <laughs> um, I, I, uh, more for me, let me tell you. I married to a psychiatrist, and she said, she would always say, I didn't have to ask, you're not going to talk about parenting without looking at the parents' Parents, because we learn our parenting style from our own parents, whether or not we adopt it or we deliberately reject it. I'm not going to make that mistake, but, but it obviously is, is our model for parenting. Um, so we needed to go back and we needed to see Don's, um, Don's parents. Look, there's no spoiler here because in the first couple of pages we learn that Don's father has terminal cancer. Um, and I, I think you're probably talking about the scene where he dies. So I wrote The Scene Where He Dies. And a week later, unexpectedly, my father died. Hmm. A slightly romanticised version of my father to write Don's father. Um, but, you know, my father was 91 and, and it was time and so on. But let me, let me tell you, um, I was very pleased I'd written that scene the week before rather than the week after. I'm sorry. Oh, that was, a, that was um, almost a year ago now. And, you know, time comes for, yeah, for people. But it was, um, I, I learned a lot about my father writing the book, so it was quite... Um, you do these
2: how much did you draw on your own childhood um, for both Don and Hudson?
3: Lots. Um, people say how much of you is there in Don Tillman, mm. and you mean Jean, um, Sad to say, um, but 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 you, you put you, when you create a character, it's almost impossible to stop a certain amount of yourself going in because you're mm. saying what would I do under the what would the character do? It's a bit of what would I do. Um, but when it came, to, the hardest part of writing the book was Hudson. I knew it was going to be difficult because it's going to be a certain age and kids change so much and, and I just, even though I've got kids, I can't remember whether they were, did something at 9 or 11 or 10 and I was worried that, I, that people who had a child of the same age as husband would say, oh that's too childish for that age or that, they wouldn't be able to do that and so on and I wasn't sure quite without you really, inter- ah, just like it was yesterday. In fact, somebody from that year that I got back in touch with wrote back in like it was yesterday, it was just that all the green year, that changing year in your life, and I remember it just so well. And I thought, that's easy. I will use me in that year as my model for Hudson. And just, who's autistic? I didn't have to change it a lot. (laughs) So that was really a very, very interesting thing. And as part of the exercise, uh, Lee Kaufman, well-known writer who's got a, a book out at the moment, called Imperfect, um, was putting an anthology together and asked, perfect, that'll help inform it. I wrote a 6,000 word essay, it was harder to write the essay than it was to write the entire novel, and I do not exaggerate, <laughs> but that essay ended up informing the novel, that, that really interrogating what it was like to be 11 and, and 12 at the time. So a lot of myself went into Hudson.
2: Mm. Why, why do you remember eleven? Is it that time between childhood and puberty? Is it? Is it a?
3: Yeah, yeah, probably at puberty. I mean, let's not get too biological, but um, <laughs> it, it was it was that time. It was my last year living in New Zealand before we moved to Australia. So there's a very clear you know, sense of location. Um, I was, I wasn't. So that was, you know, it was a real mm. break point in my life in the class. I mean. Back there, it's, it's, it was really so. I just knew myself then. I could put myself back into that space.
2: Mm. But as I say, you, you, you do cover a lot of ground in this book because um, Hudson has a little friend whose dad is a homeopath.
3: Is that? He's a homeopath. Yep.
2: Anti vaccine. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yep. Um, and. But well, they're and out there. There might be some in the audience.
2: And <laughs> and, oh. and there's <laughs> suspected domestic violence in that family as well. So.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this, well, because um, people are not one-dimensional. Um, <laughs> You know, people who are presented as very soft and caring and so forth and not necessarily, and we, we don't always see what goes on behind the scenes, um, there, was, look, there was by the racism incident. Mm-hmm. Um, Don basically answers a question in a scientific way, but without any sensitivity to racial issues and gets into massive trouble, as you would expect him to get. And I was, felt I could do that with Don, having taken him that far along. And we know that Don is a decent, sincere, uh, a man of good heart, but he can get things wrong. I wanted to show that in the first two books, when Don did things that were unconventional, we laughed and said, ha, he's actually a truth teller. He's the one who sees the truth and the rest of us don't and the neurotypicals don't. But it doesn't all cut one way. And he's going to do, sometimes do something which is going to get him into trouble, which is unacceptable. And I wanted Austin, Don, to take us on a journey where he would do something like that, ultimately so we would feel some empathy for people who do these sorts of things and and don't mean harm. Mm. Um, And, you know, that was a, a pretty difficult balancing act to actually put in the book, but the, the DV, the domestic violence thing, the toughest thing I ever wrote in any of these books is in the Rosie um, effect, Don has a meltdown and admits that he's afraid he might have struck Rosie, right. that he has to leave the house, he was afraid of what he might have done. And, and I thought, wow, to, to actually say that Don has that potential, and again I put it on the page because it was, it was honest, I, I was on a panel at one stage with a an autistic man who said his biggest fear was that in a meltdown situation, in, in anger out of control, then he might hurt somebody, or that he might hurt his wife. He would feel terrible about it. And we, I, we've got to, yeah, Autism is not associated with violence, um, but meltdowns and lack of control can, you know, can put you in a difficult position. And I just wanted to say, okay, let's get a, get some sort of a sense on that.
2: Mm. And in fact, in the book, you um, you've used a technique of uh, italicising phrases to debunk. Common misconceptions or cliches about autism. Um, for example, H- Hudson laughs, and then you've got autistic people often do not get jokes.
3: Yeah. If I ask people what's the single defining characteristic of autism, they will come straight back at me. The most common answer is lack of empathy. All right. And then you say, yeah, they say, those autistic people, they have no empathy. It was really dehumanising, by the way, because empathy is something that makes, is part of what makes us human. So you are dehumanising as soon as you say someone, okay, maybe it's true. Maybe it's true in that case, dehumanise away, except they then say, yeah, those autistic people, I just don't get them. <laughs> think about that. That's <laughs> <Where's>
2: the empathy?
3: <laughs> and, and, and I think it is... Uh, I am certain... This is not I am certain this is not a question that autistic people lack empathy. Autistic people often don't get certain signals and so forth from neurotypicals, just as neurotypicals don't get what's happening on with the autistic person, just as we used to say, oh, the Chinese, they're inscrutable, you can't see what's going on. You know? Different tribe, different—you know, different way of thinking good friend of mine, the one who inspired the Don Tillman character, said, you know, I had to do some computer programming with a guy who I was told had Asperger's. People said, oh, he's really hard to work with. He said, I've never worked with a better, more easy to communicate with person. Mm.
2: <laughs> and that, that gets to the heart of, of as I say, there are many issues in this book, but diagnosis.
3: Uh, Liz, somewhat simplistically. Um, look, D- Don rejects diagnosis mm. and he rejects it. There's a lot of, one of the themes of this book is projection. Um, which is a, a, a little bit of a twist on empathy. It's the, uh, empathy is understanding where someone else is coming from. Projection is assuming they're coming from the same place as you, as it were. And Don d- does not want a diagnosis for all sorts of reasons. Um, and he assumes that would be a bad thing for Hudson as well. That's his, that's his history. But, but times have changed. And pretty clearly, Don is going to go on a path in this book which is going to force him to ask the question about himself, because Don is nothing if not an honest mm. man, ultimately. So he's going to ask that question and that's a, a big journey and he's going to learn something from his son.
2: Because I, yeah, I thought about this in terms of Tim Fisher, former Deputy Prime, Prime Minister, who of course has a son who's autistic and at the time he mused and he went, look, probably I'm on the spectrum as well. And I wondered if Tim Fisher as a young boy had been diagnosed and had been labelled, would he have been gone on to be Deputy Prime Minister? Okay. Would it have restricted him? Would, would that label or diagnosis? And that's, that's, this book makes you think in so many ways. It's but. very
3: hard. The most yeah. common response from people who get a diagnosis, it seems to me, is this is a great relief. It's of my behaviour necess- and how I think that didn't really make sense to me. And it's comforting to know that I'm actually part of a tribe, and not only that, I can reach out and meet other people in that tribe um, and, and feel we have common ground. So overwhelmingly, it, it seems that the diagnosis is, is picked as a positive thing. But the label has not always been positive. Mm. Um, and it still is not positive. It's still, you know, it's a label which certainly I don't see it as a negative, but the community out there as a whole, um, there's just that, there's all these stereotypes. Autistic people don't feel, autistic people don't have empathy, autistic these are not good things. And all the language is around different. And we, we, we then follow immediately with, with the negative aspect of that. Oh, they're very good at maths, but. Or they're very good at spotting those sorts of things, which means they have no sensitivity to whatever. Instead of just saying, "Most, you know, the person recently voted the most important person of the 20th century, Alan Turing, um, at least retrospectively diagnosed as being on the spectrum." You know, Einstein, there's all sorts of indications that he was on the spectrum. You don't, you don't say, "Oh, look, uh, you know, that Turing guy. I mean, he was good, but." You say he was damn, damn good, and it was because, you know, it, it was. Consistent with his autism rather than held back by autism.
2: Mm. To questions very soon because we're galloping away. But the, I, I was so touched by you take us to the underrated virtue of forgiveness.
3: Oh, it's nice that you spotted that because um, <laughs> my, my, my publisher said that. He says, All my books are full of forgiveness. And they, they are. Um, and Part of that is, I think it's just a reflection of how most of us actually behave when we're not on social media anonymously, or not, trying to, not, or not being tribal and trying to score a point against the other tribe. When we deal with human beings, we just, just you need that lubrication. We're all going to make mistakes, and we have a culture where increasingly, I think, we are inclined to... Someone's done something terrible 20 years ago, or even moderately terrible, we're inclined not to give them the, the level of forgiveness that we would give someone who's got, robbed a bank and shot someone and, and served their time. Um, and you would say, well, serve their time. But um, yeah, I think we've got to, we have to find room to, not just to forgive, but to empathise, to say, you know, maybe if I was in that position, I might have done that myself rather than taking this massive high ground. And Don doesn't like tribalism either, which is almost the, the, the precursor to lack of forgiveness. And up to questions.
2: Have we got lots of questions out there? Oh great. <laughs> um, how good are you at making cocktails?
3: Oh, not too bad. Well, I wasn't before I started writing the Rosie books. Oh, okay. Um, I, I'm a wine nut. I'm a complete <laughs> wine nut. And I, was, and I based the whole cocktail making scene on something that happened in a, in a wine context. Um, but I thought cocktails would be better for the story. So I, I researched cocktails and I am now a more than adequate cocktail maker, except you know what? To keep my wife happy, my wife loves cocktails, but all I would need would be a bottle of tequila, a bottle of Cointreau, and a very Don Tillman-ish. Found the best cocktail. That's all I need to drink.
2: Is such a beautiful character. Um, he's got a lot of growing up to do, Graham.
3: Oh yeah, and and, and, my, and my wife said, "Oh, what we could do next is, is that Hudson grows up and he's looking for a partner." Sort of like the Hudson. <laughs> People say, "Am I sad to see them go?" Let me tell you. I understand that readers would say that. As a writer, the sense of relief when you get a book finished after all the edits and finally holding it done—you are so full of that relief that it's a long time before you start missing the dealing with it. <laughs> However, I have been prevailed upon to write a cookbook, the, the Don Tillman Standard. <laughs> Well, fish, well, all everyone. I can say is I hope, all, I hope all the people out there clapping are going to buy one. <laughs> it seems like a pretty crazy idea to me, but it will have full Don commentary.
2: I do love the recipes <laughs> in the book. There's no doubt about it. Um, so let me open up to questions in these remaining minutes. And I think, Katie, you were first out of the box.
0: Yeah, we might just, as we
1: do, take questions. Just fabulous Sharon will
2: get to yeah, you with yeah, the microphone. Just wait, put
1: your hand up and wait for the microphone so that it works through Thank for our Thank you audio. so much, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I thought this was something that, that might be interesting for everybody, but did you um, do, any, do you know anything about... Um, there's a theory that... So, there's a very, very common folk tale of the changeling child, which is found everywhere from Japan to Ireland. It's the idea that, you know, a healthy baby disappears at a certain age and is replaced by a changeling, which could be a demon or an enchanted piece of wood. And there's also the myth of a fairy wife who acts inappropriately and then one day disappears. And it kind of fits into the notion that, because anti-vax people who think that that vaccines cause autism, they have this notion that this is not my child anymore. So, do you know anything, did you read anything about that? Because I think it's really interesting. Okay,
3: I was was vague at all, that's the honest answer. I didn't draw on mythology or anything like that. Um, I was, as as Alex says, there's a lot in there, and it's all pretty direct social realism. (laughs) I mean, it might have been an interesting underlying thing to have there, Um, but... As I say, um, Hudson's best friend uh, um, has albinism. Yeah, there's a fair bit of stuff piled up there. But yeah, interesting. Uh,
1: a lot of those kids were killed. Yeah. it still happens today. Mm.
3: Yeah.
2: Fantastic That's question. Good, good now, point. if you could raise your hand. So we've got two mic right. runners. Yes, thank you very much. Up the back there.
3: By the way, the person I was sitting next to at the back of the room was saying that she grew up... By the way, Katie didn't really write those books because autistic people can't write novels. I just, you, need to know, you need to know that. You need to know that because and one of the questions on one of the, um, the, the uh, questionnaires for autism says, I find it difficult to make up stories. So I'm figuring, I'm figuring Katie wouldn't get a check in that box.
2: Yeah. <laughs> a so, question, question up the back here. Yes. Uh,
1: yes. Um, my question's about the audience and whether Through the series, the audience has changed, and if you have a sense of responsibility through the series to share your message the way that you have.
3: I don't feel I've got a sense of respect. Like a doctor, my first requirement is first do no harm. Um, And I do not want to, and it's really quite possible for me to project damaging stereotypes, damaging myths, and I have a huge audience, as I said. Uh, People get their ideas of autism, of all sorts of things. They get them probably more from fictional characters, be they Don Tillman, Sheldon Cooper, The Dog in the Night Time. These are the characters, uh, Rain Man, that, that form our views. More people will have seen those depictions than will have read any learned papers on it. I'm not here to lecture, but I think it's tremendously important that, that your sense of social responsibility and look your sense of I mean I've got someone with old <coughs> represented the symptoms and the albinism, the attitudes towards it, um, and so forth. It's really important because people don't read that um, very much in books. So they say, well, that's it. I'll take that away. Hmm. I think we just think. Yeah,
1: yeah. I also have a question. Hi. Um, and also about your audience. So you mentioned that your research, your sense of research, changed throughout the books. And did your intended audience uh, was it different than your actual audience?
3: Look, that's a really interesting question. My, uh, the who, you know, who I, when I went to my publisher, they said, "Who are you writing for, Graham?" You know, I think this is, a, this is a universal story. They said, "No, no, it's not like that. What you get it straight, Graham. You're writing for middle-aged women. That's, <laughs> what, that, that's, that's who. That's who we write books for." Unless you're writing YA fantasy or or whatever it might be, that's your audience. And and it's a constant pushback from my editors saying, we want more of Rosie on the page because our female readers will want to just... It's it's not a book about Rosie. Sorry, but it's largely a book about um, Don and Hudson. Hudson happens to be male. Let's be clear, we have far too little representation of females on the autism spectrum. It's great we had some representation tonight, Um, but I'm not the guy who's doing that at the moment. It was a big enough stretch for me to get as well. I would have screwed up. Um, So I I particularly want men to read my books. I'm really conscious that we have a problem with fiction. Because publishers say fiction is for women, then fiction gets written for women. And men pick it up and say, what's this? This guy, Darcy, he's got no, you know, he's got no, he, I'm not like Darcy, this, is, this isn't a guy I can relate to or, or more so. That's a, very tough on, on Jane Austen, but there's books written today where you can get away with a thin depiction of the male character because nobody really cares. I mean, I was, I was given, with, with Rosie down and so forth, and I... And the gender I, yeah, comes yeah, in, you yeah, get yeah, the and I j- just came, <laughs> If you turned it round, a book about a woman bringing up a daughter, they wouldn't be saying, we want to know what's happening with the guy at work. We want to know what his problems are, what, what, what he's negotiating. All we know is he comes home and goes out, you know, brings in the money, whatever, is annoying, is having an affair. It's, it's just, but no, they want to know all about, all about Rosie. And there was some real sexism I saw in what came back at me. Things like, so Don's the primary carer. I say, well, how come Rosie didn't go to the school meeting? Because she was at work and Don is the primary carer. Yeah, but our female readers are going to think Rosie isn't a good mother. She's got to be there. And so I would really, pl- what, what I tend to do in response to that is to play it back going to the meeting and saying and she's missing out on something really important at work and Don thinks she doesn't trust him and Don says, listen, Rosie, if I was at work, I wouldn't have come to the meeting. And she says, ah, that's what my boss said, you know, etc. Et so, but yeah, that, it's, it's quite difficult. But for my male readers, I don't want them to read that this guy's working at home but, the, but mum steps in all the time and looks after it. Mm. It's great. It's that wasn't a question you asked, but
2: I really good answer. I really
3: want everyone to read these books. This last look, the first book is always going to appeal more to people who want a love story. This last book is going to have some particular appeal, I think, to parents, um, but hey, or potential parents. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Those people. Um, now, another question. Just if you could, We've got a mic over this side as well, so if you'd like to um, put your hand up, go for it. Got Graham Cincy in here. Yeah, thank you.: I've
0: got a question about your writing process. Has it changed through the three novels? I remember when you were um, here launching the first one, and um, you were talking about writing a screenplay almost before and getting that screenplay structure before you actually started turning it into a novel. Or did you is, how did what was your process for writing this one?
3: My uh, process for um, writing the first one for this one was exactly the same as the first one, except I took out all the things that didn't work the first time around, <laughs> which, which added five years to the project, <laughs> and just did the things that did work and did them better because I had practice at them. Um, except, look, any writing, here's my summary. As a quick, writing has three stages: writing a book, planning, drafting, rewriting, stage editing. Different writers spend different amounts of time on those stages. Some people spend almost zero on the planning process, and so they just make it up as they go along. But often they struggle at the beginning. That's the message I hear from subconsciously. You write beautifully the first time, so they don't have to do much editing. Some people like me say, don't get it right, get it done, and then we'll come back. My wife's worse. Uh, my wife is a worst drafter, but then she does the hard work and in, in, in the editing. So that's my process. I do my planning as I was a screenplay, using index cards and so on, until I've got a... You know, a story laid out. The main thing is I'm not smart enough to do it all at once. I devote my mind to the, to the story, to the plan, then I devote my mind to getting the draft done, then I devote my mind to, making it, to writing it as well as possible. And of course you go back and forth a little bit, but by doing one thing at a time I can actually get there.
2: In the red, if we can get...
3: Um, you sa- um, someone board, she said, am I loud enough? It's for the podcast. Oh, Thanks, uh, oh, okay.
2: thank you. Um, someone <laughs> mentioned screenplay, now I heard there's a movie
3: on the way, ah, are you involved they in asked that? the question? You asked the question. I didn't have to ask it, thank okay, <laughs> you. It's the single most often asked question about it, <laughs> what about the movie? Some of you will know, you heard from the previous question that The Rosie Project was originally a screenplay, I couldn't get it up, therefore I um, rewrote it as a novel, Sony Pictures optioned the rights, and have now purchased them outright, and we're just waiting to find who's right for Rosie. Actors who are right for each other, who are available at the same time, so we just wait. Meantime, The Best of Adam Sharp has been optioned by Tony Collette's oh. company and is in development in the UK. And Two Steps Forward, the one I wrote with my partner, my wife Anne, has been optioned by uh, Fox Searchlight with Ellen DeGeneres to produce. And we're waiting on that one, but I keep saying these are like tax-lotto tickets, movie options. You put them in your back pocket, forget about them, one day you get the call and your life changes, but you don't lie awake at night hoping it'll happen.
2: No, I think last question anyone yeah thank
3: you
1: so Graham you write for people how about people who've never met these joy this book and get all that multi-layered stuff that um, Alex was talking about
3: yes but why would you <laughs>
2: That's a great answer. (laughs) You're going to love them all. You're going to love them all. Um, Graham, look, it's always just a joy to see you. Um, Thank you so much. And actually, coincidentally, Karen Biggers. I'm in conversation with her new novel, The Orchard's Daughter, to Karen tomorrow Biggers? night, tomorrow evening, oh. if <laughs> everyone can come, local writer, um, who talks about the writing process as well. But it's just beautiful
3: to see the fourth book. And oh, it's going to be so <laughs> the audiences.
2: No, no, no. Karen Viggers. <laughs> if I said her name in France now, Karen Viggers, uh, she's a rock star there. 800,000 copies of her book. So, uh, you know, her books are about so many things, about nature, about beautiful characters. But if you can come along tomorrow night at the ANU, I'd love to see you all there. But beautiful to see Karen here. But back to you, Graham. No, um. no, no. I, 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 say, I
3: couldn't help it. I saw her sitting there. If we've got any books in the bookstore, for God's sake, bring them up.
2: <laughs> Graham is, uh, he's one of those people when you meet, you know, because I just so love it The Rosie is. Project, which you just go to so love r- first reading it. And when I met him, he's actually nicer, even genuinely, lovely man and I Come love on, it. Come you, on
3: you've seen me real life tonight so <laughs> what, what she's really saying is originally thought it was worse than this.
2: <laughs> I've met his wife and too but I also love the fact that this is your second real career as well which is which is a really important like so when did you write Rosie how old were you then?
3: Oh here we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> I made the decision to um, to become a writer yep. and I had not written any fiction with, a pos- with the exception of that adapted screenplay um, I've not written any fiction since I was about fourteen or 15, fourteen or so. There you go. Um, and yeah, so fifty when I started.
2: Get writing, everyone. <laughs> fine book. This is a, a fine trilogy. I can't believe I'm not going to get Hudson grown up, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's done. Signed um, with Graham, and I'll see you tomorrow night with Karen Viggers at <laughs> the ANU. <A&E. laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: Wasn't that a delight, everyone? So we've just got a couple of more things. We've got some winners, I think. I understand as you walked in, you were all got some raffle tickets. So um, before we adjourn upstairs for purchasing books and some refreshments, I'm just going to read out our lucky winners. So if you've got your ticket nearby, um, we've got a green ticket D82. Just wave, and we've got a little gift for you for this evening. No? Not that one. Um, Orange E20. (laughs) <laughs> that's wonderful and the next one is green D84 oh excellent <laughs> uh, now these are, these are to put the books in, they're lovely calico bags so um, green D66 we're on a run with greens here, um, once again green so D45 oh excellent We all like a little gift every now and again. So it's green D83 is the next one we have. Oh, excellent. And we're going to have a change of colour. So we're moving from green to orange, so E9. Oh, yes, right up the back. Fantastic. And then back to green, D70. Oh, at the front. Excellent. And then back to orange and it's E13. Oh, right up the back. (laughs) And then orange again, and it's E17 this time. Oh, terrific. Have we got more bags, or are we just about done? We've got one to go. Okay, we've got a green D60. Oh, fantastic. Well, well done, everyone. We hope you enjoy the Calico bags. (laughs) So can I just... um just lastly, um, thank you so much for coming once again to the National Library. Please um, stay for the refreshments upstairs. Uh, the books, of course, of both Katie and Graham are available in the bookshop with a, a very welcome 10% discount um, as part of our community service obligation here at the National Library. Um, so thank you for coming, and once again, uh, many thanks to, to Alex and to Graham and to Katie for this evening.